Welcome friends and colleagues. Today I'd like to take a step out of our current topic of discussion and go back to something at the very beginning. When we started, I justified uh, approaching uh, the Hebrew Bible as a repository of wisdom and teaching. After all, the word Torah really means teaching. It does not mean law with a capital L. It does not mean stories necessarily and not laws exclusively. It's teaching. Even the laws have an underlying uh, emotional philosophical background in that they teach something. At least the great majority of them. We'll talk about it when we talk about distinction in how the Hebrew Bible classifies laws, such as testimonies, chukim, uh, statutes, and mishpotim, uh, laws, judgments, etc. We argued that the Hebrew Bible contributed so much to the world and that so much of our culture is based on that. We took it as a given that it profoundly influenced our political system, our ethics, the way we look at interactions with people. Before the Hebrew Bible, the world was a very difficult place. In Hobbes' words, it was a short and brute life. There was competition and fighting between clans, between tribes, later between nations, and between people within the tribes and nations. Much blood was spilled. There was no charity. There were no welfare systems. The poor and the weak suffered. And no one thought to deliver them from their oppressors. Justice was not a value. So it would seem basic that the Hebrew Bible should be, whether you believe in God or not, an important subject of study. We should be really looking at it as Westerners as to what we've derived from it because it's what we really are. However, that's not the case. How, how did it come to be that way? Even among the believers, uh, Biblical illiteracy is a, an increasing phenomenon. The Christian world is very concerned about that. And I'm not talking about people of the street who don't know who Moses was, but believing people who go to church, especially it is true by the Hebrew Bible. Uh, I've seen studies that show that black churches have more of an engagement with the Hebrew Bible because they see the story of slavery and delivery from slavery as more basic to their identity and resonates. But still, other areas of the Bible, they're not doing better on than, uh, uh, than uh, white churches or uh, regular Christian believers. In the university, Bible is just not considered. In our public square, it just doesn't exist. 
how did we come to this state of affairs? Now, it is true that in the past few years, there's been a push to recognize the importance of the Hebrew Bible in philosophy, in political philosophy. But that hasn't trickled down to the culture. And I don't know if it ever will. That's not to say that it wasn't kind of recognized, but eyes were closed to it. A number of uh, academicians are now attempting to redress this, and as we know, the head leads the body, or as sometimes it's said, the fish rots from its head. The universities definitely lead the society. There may be 20, 30, 40 year um, delay, but the ideas that are taught in university come out and influence society. It's always been this way, and we see this in our day especially so, as a host of new ideas are transforming the thinking of the society and the teachings of the 60s are coming now down to the level of the common man. There, there are a number of books. Um, Eleanor Stump's Wandering in Darkness uh, recently appeared in 2010, arguing for the need to incorporate the biblical narratives into the discipline of philosophy. Eric Nielsen started off a field of considered Hebraic political theory uh, in, uh, uh, in, in, and its influence on uh, Western Enlightenment tradition of government. It, even before him, the, the chief rabbi Hertz's uh, uh, commentary on Chumash has notes in the back where he develops the idea of such things as limitation of powers, division of powers uh, being present within uh, the Jewish uh, Hebraic political system. There is a king, there is the Ada, later called Sanhedrin, or court, and there is a prophets. So this is trifold division of powers. And Israel was never a absolute monarchy. Um, as pointed out by some, Rabbi Victor Miller in one of his books, uh, when Ahab wanted a garden of Naboth, it never entered his mind that he could just take it. It was his wife, Isabel, who grew up in the court of a Canaanite king that was incensed by that. I mean, her home, you always took what you wanted if you were a king. And even then, Naboth had to manufacture a legal uh, way of obtaining the field through having two witnesses testify uh, about Naboth's betrayal of the king. So there was always division of power. That is, though, a different topic, but perhaps we can cover that. So Eric Nielsen was uh, opened up the field of that. More recently, even Yoram Hazoni, 
wrote the philosophy of Hebrew scripture, in which he argues that Bible is a philosophy. Now this is interesting because I remember reading in the, the article on Jewish philosophy in the 1920 Jewish Encyclopedia, and the metaphor that was used was that philosophy is in suspension within the Hebrew Bible, and you have to precipitate it out. I think Hazoni has a little bit of a different approach in that it is basic, not something that needs to be found and precipitated to be recognized, but it's basic to the message of the Bible. Not being a philosopher, I approach this from the standpoint of argument and rhetoric. I believe that Hebrew Bible has a message and in fact has many messages. Unlike Moses Gottschein, who we quoted uh, last week, I don't consider it to be scattered, unrelated narratives that give uh, various lessons, but not in the framework. I think there is a framework, and that's what we spoke about last week. There definitely is a framework, but it's not only the large lesson. Within this, the genius of the Bible is that it contributes multiple ideas about how to live, about family, about society, many, many tens of thousands of points that you can recognize. And it does it in the framework of presenting an argument that engages all of a human being. The mind, the interpretive capacity, the emotion, the feeling, the archetypes. But how is it that these things are not recognized? Uh, Yoram Hazoni in his book makes an interesting argument to explain that. He blames this on the dichotomy between reason and revelation, which was adopted by the church fathers as a way of sharpening the difference between the teaching of New Testament and those of the philosophers, which were their main competition. Uh, the pagan philosophers portray Christianity as irrational, superstitious, not fitting for men of mind. The response of the church fathers was that precisely there's a distinction between reason and faith. The hidden secrets of God are now being revealed. The salvific power of faith, eternal life, these are the subjects of this new religion. The distinction got so settled in that Kant could, with a straight face, argue that Judaism was not a religion at all, because it wasn't about faith and revelation. It was about life and about how to live a life. How could that be religion, he thought? Uh, Obviously, he was missing some important points there. This is found in Immanuel Kant, Religion Within the Limits of Reason Alone, Harper and Rowe, 1960, page 116. Well, the Enlightenment philosophers seized in this distinction, but reversed it. They inverted it. Now the argument was that religion, which approached them and Christianity, because Judaism was not worthy of a serious consideration to them, is irrational. And only what we can understand by reason 
is worth of concern. The reason Revelation Dichotomy is based on the fact that the scripture says, and the Lord said to Moses, or thus says the Lord of the prophets, well, if it comes from there, it's not relevant. Only reason is relevant. Why is it relevant? This, we know there is no God. We know there is no divine inspiration. And therefore, whoever claims that is weak-minded or plain mad. And why should we listen to them? How could they teach any important lessons? Therefore, any philosophy any ethics, any psychology that's based on um, direct revelation is worthless. So that's how we get to the point where the Bible has nothing to say to the world. Now, uh, Hazoni makes a point in his introduction that even philosophers invoked deities. He quotes passages from Parmenides, and Socrates, which describe how they obtained their revelation of their philosophical ideas. Empedocles says the same thing. It came through the muses, through the, through the gods. But since it doesn't fit into the paradigm of reason versus revelation, such passages were disregarded. And the approach was that if it comes with the claims of revelation, it's worthless. So he argues, Hazoni argues, that that's how we got to this point. Throw in a, a rebellious spirit, the rebellious spirit of the Enlightenment. They wanted to throw God's yoke off their shoulders very, very much. They did not want to be limited by any laws or any presuppositions. Add throw into this anti-Semitism, as Solomon Schechter said, biblical criticism, higher criticism is higher anti-Semitism, in which uh, it became popular uh, not to give Jews credit for anything. And you have a not only neglect, but an antipathy to biblical teachings. And that's how universities approach things. Many history books, many philosophical summaries uh, bypass the Hebrew Bible and what it has to teach. Now, fortunately, it's changing, and as the head leads the body, so the new scholarship will eventually drip down into society. I quoted Yoram Hazoni's book. Another worthwhile book is by Drew Johnson, who has the Center for Hebraic Scholarship, I think it's called, in the King's College, in an evangelical um, college uh, in downtown Manhattan. Um, he wrote the book, Biblical Philosophy, Hebraic Approach to the Old and New Testament. The Tikva Fund had a podcast with Drew Johnson on July 6, 2021. I confess I have not yet read his book, in which he says, in great humbleness, 
that his book is a footnote to Hazonia's book. But obviously he is looking, obviously it has a lot to contribute and I look forward to reading it. Uh, and of course it also has a different perspective. In the book Johnson argues that beginning in the Hebrew Bible and extending through the Christian New Testament, the Bible has a coherent manner of seeking out wisdom that bears all the distinguishing characteristics of a text with philosophical depth. He sees the New Testament as using Hebraic background with Hellenistic or Greek methodology of argument. The book is called Biblical Philosophy, colon, a Hebraic approach to the Old and New Testaments. So things are changing. Things they are a changing. And um, we may expect them to begin filtering down to society and culture. Uh, how it will fare in the new uh, zeitgeist in which there is no place for revelation uh, and which now argues that the Bible is inherently immoral, racist and all that, even though there's not a touch of racism in the Bible, but it's inherently hierarchical and oppressive. Will these ideas begin to make an impact and undermine such a worldview? Time will show. Yet, it is certainly reassuring that there is a, a paradigm shift happening of all places in academia, published by academic publishing presses, that is beginning to point out how basic the Bible is to our society and how it should be studied, whether you believe it or not, as a work of philosophy. My goal in this podcast is along this direction to pay special attention to the rhetoric, the way Bible approaches the argument that certainly there should be no um, question that it has been immensely persuasive. It conquered so many lands and more than a billion people who believe in it, who live right now in this world. So it is somehow persuading them. I want to understand how it does it and do so talking specifically uh, about passages in the order of the Hebrew Bible. So we had started with Genesis and we are now at the nexus of the first and second chapter and we'll keep on going on. So thank you very much. Really appreciate your fellowship and may you have only blessings.